Good morning, Mission Fellowship Church family. I've been praying that even in the midst of so much bad news and mourning, that this last week was indeed a time of celebration in the resurrection of our Savior. I know that there's a certain level of stress, anxiety, and sadness that underlies much of life right now. But I've personally had a renewed sense of joy and hopeful expectation this week, that while we don't know how much longer we have under the current restrictions, I do know that regardless of what life brings, regardless of what mourning we are undergoing, God is still good. While his will is often mysterious, his character, his holiness and goodness is not. So whatever you are enduring right now, whether joyful expectation and hope, or deep sadness and mourning, or maybe somewhere in between, I hope that this time in the Lord's word will be rejuvenating to your soul. And while we still sense the lack of being able to meet together and engage with one another in congregational voice as we sing together, we can take in the Lord's word together as one body, engaging in the sanctification that the Lord intends for us during this time. I hope that this brings you some sense of joy and peace. This morning we will begin with a reading from Isaiah 42, 1-10 by Jordan Radke, and then Acts 17, 24-31 by Esther Colmer. In these readings, focus in on the theme of our complete need and reliance upon God for even life itself. Then one of our elders, Patrick Schneider, will lead us in a pastoral prayer. May the Lord visit each of you today with an understanding of his peace and love by his Spirit. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 10. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in the righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 24 through 31. The Lord who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think about the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness and by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Lord, we come before you today to present ourselves humbly before you. We know you are powerful. You have shown this power by the resurrection, defeating sin and death. And we know you are faithful. You have remained faithful to a people that has tested your covenant with them for thousands of years. We know you are love. You have communicated and demonstrated your love and compassion for your people, sacrificing yourself for our good. We know you are righteous and just. You gave righteous commands and based them on the law of love. You do not let evil go unpunished, yet are slow to act in anger. All will stand before you one day and receive righteous judgment. May we each bow down in submission to your greatness. May we follow you because you are powerful, faithful, loving, righteous, and so much more. You are the eternal God most high. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. No other can stand in your place of power. Yet, we are people hungry for our own power to be self-reliant. In our walk with you, Lord, may we understand that we no longer should pursue power for our own self-reliance. It is not worth losing our soul to gain the whole world. It is not worth separation from you. Help us to rely upon you. We are in a season that reminds us that we have very limited control. We are limited to our own actions. We can use those actions to try to selfishly bring glory to ourselves or to rightfully glorify you, our God. We are seeing so many examples in this pandemic of those that make sacrifices for the other and those that seek for selfish gain. Yet in both example types, We can still have motivation that is seeking control during this troubling time. Action alone is not enough as disciples of Christ. We have a greater need, which is to wholly rely upon you. Only you can truly weather the storms that we face. Only you can deliver us from the evil one. Only you can bring us to complete shalom. Only you can rule your people for eternity. Only you are capable and worthy to follow. 
May we hear your word with humility. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I don't know about any of you, but it's been a bit of a surprise to me how much this last season of coronavirus has revealed to me about myself and about how much more work there is to be done in my walk with Christ. So many people, myself included, are operating with higher stress, higher anxiety, and a feeling of being out of control. And who can blame us? In reality, the world is a bit upside down right now. Many people are out of work, the economy is spiraling out of control, and there's lots and lots of death, more than we're used to seeing recorded in the news. And so in the midst of this, many of us are trying to cope. It's part of being human. We're trying to adapt. For some, the higher stress and anxiety might be coming out in attitudes and behaviors that you don't like about yourself, and maybe even thought were overcome. For some, there's also the tension of desiring to help others, but then also wanting to protect yourself and your family, a normal tension of selflessness and selfishness. For others, there's a feeling of being out of control, and so you've tried to gain more control in your environment or immediate relationships. Those of you who've been cleaning your house nonstop since the coronavirus hit know what I'm talking about. When this happens, we start to notice a drift away from the spiritual and the shame and condemnation set in. We realize we are not as far along spiritually as we may have thought or hoped. Some whom I have talked with have reported losing motivation, wondering what the point is when the world has come to a stop. Or maybe you've started to lose faith in the Lord and in his plan. Maybe prayer has become less of a priority because we're all so focused on the practical. It's in the midst of these hard times and battles that we often encounter spiritual setbacks. This is when we're confronted with the spiritual arrogance that's built up in our lives, and we realize we might still have habits or an underlying religious mindset, but our actual reliance on Christ has waned, and we are relying upon ourselves to get us through. You see, hard times, trials and tribulations, whether they're intended to be so by God or not, are times that we are lovingly reminded of who we are and who God is. He is the creator. We are just the creation. He is the provider. We are simply the recipient. He is the author. We are his prose. He is the artist. We are his canvas. He is the instructor. We are simply the pupil. He is the judge. And we are the judged. He is the light. We are mere reflections. He is the source of life. We are merely the conduit. He is the originator of love. And we are merely the reflections. We realize in these times, more than ever, that we are not okay by ourselves. We need God. We have consistent ongoing need for reliance upon him. And in times like these, when it seems that we should be most reliant upon him, we actually quickly find ourselves doing everything but relying upon him. And so it's in the midst of the struggles and trials that we are reminded of the words of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
That's from James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Trials are a blessing because they cause us to return to the source of our soul, the source of all, God himself. Trials teach us complete reliance upon the Lord. In our text this morning, we've moved squarely into a section of the gospel, according to Mark, that runs from 8, verse 27, to chapter 10, verse 52, in which the disciples are being directly taught and trained by Christ about what it is to be his disciple. He is giving them a bit of a discipleship 101 course. Remember Christ's statement in chapter 8, verse 34 of Mark. He says, in calling, it says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The section of text we are in right now begins to define what that looks like to take up the cross of Christ and follow him. He is schooling them on the journey of discipleship. You see, discipleship is not a destination in which you've learned enough or are righteous enough. Discipleship is a journey with Christ and with his people that doesn't end until the resurrection. And even then, it's simply a new beginning. And what we will see in our text today is a circumstance in which the characters within this narrative are taught the truth and necessity of complete reliance upon the Lord. And so that's what I've entitled today's teaching. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Discipleship 101, Complete Reliance Upon the Lord. Discipleship 101, Complete Reliance Upon the Lord. Let's read our text for this morning from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? 
And Jesus said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The author first gives us the setting of the disciples' spiritual setback. The setting of the disciples' spiritual setback. That's the first point of today's teaching. The setting of the disciples' spiritual setback. Jesus and the three disciples have come back and rejoined the remaining disciples. Peter, James, and John have had a view of Christ's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They have had the mountaintop experience in which they saw Christ in a preview of his glory. They may not fully understand it yet, but what an experience. But then they come down the mountain into the valley of everyday life and ministry. And there they find the disciples have hit a speed bump, a spiritual setback. If you remember back with me to chapters 3 and 6 in Mark, Christ prepared the disciples that they would be seeing and working through this very situation of demon possession. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In chapter 6, verse 7, it says that he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then in 6.13, it says they were successful. It says they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You see, if anyone could claim a certain level of having arrived as a top-tier disciple, it would be these guys. I mean, they walked with Jesus, they learned from Jesus, they were given authority by Jesus, and then in Jesus' name, they proved that they had the same power of the Holy Spirit that he did to cast out demons. But now, in our text before us today, they've seemingly failed. Jesus steps away for a minute, well, in reality, probably a few days, but not a very long time. And the whole thing comes crashing down. They thought they had the power. Why didn't it work this time? Can you imagine the scene with me? This poor father brought his son for the power of Jesus to heal him. Some of the manuscripts and translations even say that when he cried out to ask for help with his unbelief, he did so with tears. His heart was completely broken. But then he shows up, and there are just the disciples. It's okay, they might have said. We've done this before. Let us pray for him. So they tried, and nothing. No healing, no exorcism. And the word also says there that the scribes were there as well. So they probably jumped on this as an opportunity to say that Jesus was a fraud, and so were the disciples. So you can only imagine embarrassment creeps in. As any human would, they most likely tried to defend themselves, perhaps even insinuating that the father or son were at fault. It's worked before, they might have said. But now I'm making some guesses. What we see for sure is that there was a crowd and scribes are arguing with them. So Jesus intervenes to find out what is going on. But rather than a disciple speaking, the boy's father jumps in and points out that the disciples, quote unquote, were not able to help the child. 
Does this sound familiar to you? You feel like you've reached a certain point in life, a certain point in your walk with Christ, like you should have certain things down, and yet you feel like you've failed. I wonder how many Christian homes have this same feeling hanging over them right now. I thought I'd gotten past this conflict or attitude in our marriage or in our friendships or with my roommates or in our relationship with our kids, and yet here we are again. I thought I had a certain trust in Christ, and yet here I am finding anxiety or loneliness or depression again, and all it took to drudge it back up was a quarantine. Well, dear friend, if you're thinking that, you're probably not alone. I've had to bring a lot of my same old patterns of negativity and sin to the Lord this week and ask, Lord, I thought we got rid of this. Why is it here again? I thought I'd overcome this or that. I thought I was a better disciple than this. Could it be instead that we've misunderstood discipleship? Perhaps we, like the disciples in this story, have viewed discipleship as a series of gates to pass or levels to move up until eventually we would arrive at spiritual quote-unquote enlightenment, as if there was a certain amount of prayer or Bible knowledge or spiritual disciplines that we could institute or practice that would finally give us our discipleship merit badge. Now, this is not bad in and of itself in terms of Bible reading, Bible knowledge, prayer, and spiritual disciplines. These are good things, but if we're using them as checkboxes to move up certain levels, there's a problem. I find this is often the case in my pastoral counseling. Dear saints have setbacks in which they beat themselves up and say to me, I thought I was past this. Why is it creeping up again? Well, let's look at where I'm getting this likelihood in the text, that they were struggling with spiritual setbacks. The disciples come to Jesus at the end and show some exasperation in their question. Why could we not cast it out? There's an underlying assumption there that because they had done it before, they should be able to do it again. But Jesus responds, this kind cannot be driven out but by prayer. Now let's pause here. What Jesus is not doing is giving them a corrective to their practice of magical incantations. He is not schooling them on the part of the process that they forgot to include. It is not that they forgot to pray in the moment. It was that they were not engaged in ongoing prayer ongoing relational communication with the Father. This is why Jesus shows his own exasperation earlier when he says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Multiple commentators differ on who he's speaking to here, but the easiest answer is that he is speaking to the entire crowd, including his disciples. And to be faithless means a lack of continued faithfulness, continued relationship and intimacy. You see, discipleship is not a curriculum or program with checklists. It is a personally tailored process in which you learn to walk in increasing reliance upon Christ. It is a process by which you shed your self-reliance one layer at a time to realize that you are to be reliant upon the Lord for everything. That's the covenant relationship in which you've engaged when you accept Jesus as Savior and King. The typical Jewish rabbi discipleship was that the rabbi would train the disciple until he had become fully like his master, and then he would be released to go and become a rabbi to others. 
But unlike that typical relationship, the relationship of Jesus to his disciples is that while you become like your master, you never walk away from your master. With Jesus, you're always a disciple of the master. And so you learn your complete reliance upon him, and that never goes away. And the moments we realize this the most are the moments in which we often thought we would be the most prepared. Those moments in which we are engaged in spiritual battles, not unlike the disciples with this case of demon possession. And so that's the second point we see in our text today. You can write this down. Spiritual setbacks come in the midst of spiritual battles. Spiritual setbacks come in the midst of spiritual battles. All of us desire to have arrived as the saints riding with Christ upon white horses symbolized in the book of Revelation. We all desire to be spiritual warriors fighting alongside Christ. And so it makes sense that we become so quickly disheartened when we encounter spiritual battles and yet respond in a way that is less than stellar. Jesus has been training the disciples to be heralds of the kingdom of God and warriors exerting power over the kingdom of darkness. This is the task they were engaged in as they tried to exercise the demon and free the child, but they were unable. The father of this child is bringing forth his son that by all accounts in today's diagnostics would be said to be experiencing epilepsy. But beyond that, Mark also notes that he is mute. This is more than a case of mere organic brokenness. But even if it were medical alone, the kingdom of darkness is at the source of all that comes to lie, kill, steal, and destroy. Notice the father's description that the demon often casts the boy into fire or water, desiring to destroy him. The disciples are engaged in spiritual warfare, trying to overcome the kingdom of the adversary of God. But the problem here is that in the midst of this battle, the disciples had missed the mark. Jesus' frustration and subsequent action shows that the disciples had been self-reliant as if they had reached the exorcism level, capability of being a disciple. But the point was not gaining knowledge or power. The point was relying upon the one from whom power originates. The language that Jesus uses to express his frustration is similar to the covenant faithlessness shown in the Old Testament. Look with me, for example, at Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 17. Deuteronomy 32, 17 through 20. It says, They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. The people of Israel, whom Christ was in essence judging in the Gospels, had turned to anything and to any God other than the God that had freed them and given birth to them as a nation. They were not paying attention to the one in whom they found their foundation. And so God respected their choice. As they turned from him, he took the hint and hid his face from them. Remember, though, this was not just some random act of immaturity on God's part. He is not a capricious or chaotic God. 
God only did this after generations of faithlessness and even then sent his son to rescue. God is a good God and pursues us in spite of our sin, but there does come a point, if we persist, in which he accepts our refusal and turns his face away in judgment. Israel needed to acknowledge that they were nothing without the Lord. They needed to acknowledge their need for complete reliance upon him. Reliance upon God for the purpose of having spiritual power is not the answer. Reliance upon God will result in the natural overflow that he will work through you and his power and ability to conquer the darkness will naturally come. What Jesus was trying to get the disciples to see is that it wasn't just a one-time installment of spiritual power, nor was prayer to be reserved for public display and only to be used when they needed it. Jesus was teaching the disciples that personal prayer life and personal relationship to the source of life is the headspring from which all spiritual power and sustenance originates. And what a wonderful realization this would have been for the original audience of the gospel in the first century. Remember that those in, this, in the church at that time were most likely new believers, and they were in the Roman Empire facing martyrdom, loss of life, a feeling of powerlessness. And most likely, they had a feeling of inadequacy and inability to do anything about it, and they were crying out to the sky, wondering where God was in the midst of all of the death going on around them. Their everyday life was probably beset with a feeling of spiritual setbacks. But isn't that what is wonderful about the Word of God? Just as with here, uh, God uses fallible, broken people throughout His Word. Just as the disciples are fallible, we see some of the greatest of the greats have spiritual setbacks. Moses, Elijah, David, and Peter. If these people needed to be taught complete reliance upon God, maybe we can learn this truth as well and be given the room to learn it as we go, not beating ourselves up for not having arrived yet. When we encounter spiritual struggles, spiritual warfare, the battle between the kingdoms of light and darkness, life and destruction, we are bound to experience what we deem spiritual setbacks. But rather than beating ourselves up or feeling ashamed for not having gotten as far in our Christian walk as we once thought, this is actually the time to rejoice in the gracious mercy of God. Not that he's the source of the darkness, but that in these dark times, that he would use what Satan means for evil to remind us of our complete reliance upon him. Spiritual struggles become the setting for spiritual setbacks, and thus they also become the settings for spiritual growth as we rely more upon Christ. In those settings of spiritual setbacks, what we find is that the solution to spiritual setbacks is ongoing reliance upon God. And that's what we see as our last point if you're taking down notes. You can write this down as the third point in our teaching today. The solution to spiritual setbacks is ongoing reliance upon the Lord. We see this here in two ways. First, in the conversation and interaction between Christ and the Father. And secondly, in Jesus' statement about prayer. Let's look first at the interaction with the boy's father. In the end of verse 22, the father says, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds with, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. 
This is the high point of the text as the father cries out, possibly through tears, I believe, help my unbelief. Now let's pause for a second because this set of verses and others like it in the Gospels are often used as proof text by hyper-spiritual theological camps to proclaim two what I believe to be false assertions. First, if we want something bad enough, we need to just have enough faith and we will get it. And this is a kind of prosperity gospel. And second, if we don't get what we've asked for, we must not have had enough faith when asking. But both of these cannot be accurate. In response to the first, I guarantee that the dad wanted his son healed more than anything. And he had enough faith to bring his son to Jesus' disciples, and yet it did not happen until his interaction with Christ. To the second, notice that the father is actually described here as lacking faith, and yet Jesus was able to exercise the demon. So the belief here is not the object in and of itself. The point here is not that belief is the thing to be accomplished. Rather, the point is the one in whom you trust to accomplish it. Belief here can easily be reframed as trust. It's not the trust itself, but the one in whom the trust is placed. It's as if he is crying out to Jesus, I trust you, but please help me trust you more. Similarly, when Jesus points to prayer, prayer is not powerful in and of itself. It is only powerful as part of the ongoing regimen of spiritual intimacy with Christ, the one to whom we are praying. The reason Jesus then acts in miraculous power to free the boy from oppression and raise him up is not because the man suddenly developed record growth of faith. It's because he realized the inadequacy of his faith and used all that he had, all of the minuscule faith he had, to rely upon Christ. In this simple picture, we have a beautiful illustration of the gospel. Simple, inadequate trust in Christ as Savior and King, as the King who gave himself over to death on our behalf, is all that is needed for Christ to act in freeing us from our sin and raising us up to eternal life. His trust was indeed small, but the one in whom he trusted was all-powerful. J.R. Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, says this, True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Let me help with an illustration. When we drive across a bridge, We never look at our trust of the bridge and think, wow, I must be crossing this bridge and it must be holding me up because of my mental belief that this bridge is holding me up. It's by the innate nature of the structure over which we are driving that we are able to cross. We can believe all we want and if the bridge has a crack in it, it will not work. 
Our simple belief or trust in that structure is merely the way we find ourselves upon the truth of the bridge's innate strength. Similarly, we are not granted salvation because we have earned it by our faith. We are saved by the grace of God manifested in the sacrificial act of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. His death paid the price for our transgressions against God. And then three days later, his resurrection was the manifestation of power that is able to save us from eternal death and give us eternal life at the resurrection. Whether or not you and I have faith in it, it happened and it proved the power of Almighty God. Our faith or trust in it is simply the on-ramp by which we take hold of the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the local church in Ephesus and said in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Dear brother or sister, even our faith, even our trust in and upon God is, in and of itself, a gift of God. Faith is simply the trust in God that says, Father, I can't believe in you, trust in you, or turn to you unless you first call me and help me and give me faith. I have so little to give you. In fact, I have nothing. Please help me anyway. That is the prayer of a sinner. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Well, not only do we see that the solution to spiritual setbacks is ongoing reliance upon the Lord in the interaction between Jesus and the father of the boy, but we also see that the solution to spiritual setbacks is ongoing reliance upon the Lord in Jesus' statement on prayer. The disciples come to him in shock, asking why their exorcism didn't work. And Jesus responds, this one only comes out by prayer. Now again, the context of this makes it not a requirement of exorcism, but a reliance upon the one to whom they are praying. Some translations add, and fasting, but that is not included in the earliest manuscripts, and so the ESV and NASB do not include it. Exorcism as pictured in Mark is not just a cool spiritual party trick. It's symbolic of the greater war that Jesus is waging against the demonic forces who would oppress those under demonic control. What prayer accomplishes is not a magic incantation under which the demons have to submit. It accomplishes a connection to the one whose power can destroy all that the kingdom of darkness is and does. Additionally, this is the first call to prayer in the entire Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been shown as an example of prayer, but this is the first time you see him almost commanding it. Why? Well, prayer is one of our primary tools to show our reliance upon God, and therefore, it is the first thing we should look to when we are in the midst of spiritual battles and the spiritual setbacks that we find within them. Reread through the first eight chapters of Mark and see Jesus needing to spend time with the Father. If Jesus needed to do it, if Jesus used prayer as a way to connect with the Father, then you and I should probably take note of that. So let me finish with some practical encouragement around the topic of prayer. 
And if you are finding yourself in the midst of a spiritual setback right now, perhaps this will help and give you a shot in the arm. First, prayer is about relationship. If you don't have an ongoing relationship with Christ, you can pray all you want, and it will not result in the positive outcome you are looking for. It's so interesting to me, the numbers that are popping up on some of the news cycles about how many people are praying that never have before, or how many people are finding themselves religious that never have before. I guess the old saying of there are no such things as atheists in foxholes could be translated to there are no such things as atheists during pandemics. But it's interesting that the idea of prayer has popped up as a way to get God to operate. When we realize that we're truly out of control, maybe we do turn to the Lord more. But the reality is, is that we need to have relationship in order for that prayer to be what it is supposed to be. So if you're listening and don't feel like you have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, today is the day to start it. Cry out to God in the same way as the father in the story. Cry out and say, Lord, I want to trust. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Profess to Christ that you accept his sacrifice on the cross for your sin and submit your life to him. Repent from your sins and turn to worship Christ. Then begin the process of letting your reliance upon him grow. Prayer is a part of relationship with God. Step into that relationship. Second, we are to pray, period. I know this sounds funny to even include this, but have you ever noticed how prayer is all over the Bible? But there is never really a ton of instruction on how to do it other than the Lord's Prayer or maybe the models that we have. The Bible just basically assumes that we are going to pray, that we are going to just talk to our Creator. The word pray and its variations, are found 686 times. And prayer is modeled or discussed over and over and over in the Bible. It's just assumed. In my years in ministry, I've heard every excuse as to why prayer is not necessary or fruitful, from God already knows what I'm going to pray, so why even pray to he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. But again, that is seeing prayer as a means to manipulate God's hand rather than a simple means of communication with someone with whom we are in relationship. We hear God's voice through his word and his people. We speak to God through prayer. Good relationships are never one-sided in communication, so we should make sure ours with the Lord isn't either. So pray, speak to God. And then read his word and listen to his people. Let him speak to you in the quiet, still voice of your heart. Third, pray without ceasing. Pray constantly. Have a constant stream of conversation open with the Lord. This doesn't mean that you need to be verbalizing prayer at all times. But there's a command in Romans 12.12 to pray without ceasing. So what does this mean? Well, the closest thing I can think of is the conversation I have with my wife. I begin it in the morning when we wake up and I say good morning to her and as I leave the house and then throughout the day as I text her and then when I come home at night, we have an ongoing conversation. The topics may differ, but our conversation is ongoing and that's what we need to have with the Lord. We may purposefully start and stop 
different content or topics or moments of praise, but we have an ongoing dialogue with the Lord each and every day. We realize that communication is always there. Pray without ceasing. Fourth, pray honestly. You don't have to put on a front with Jesus. I think many of us who grew up in homes with well-meaning parents who said things like, we don't hate or we shouldn't be angry, and in essence minimized any negative emotion, maybe not teaching us or training us how to work through it. I think that's translated over for many of us into our relationship with God. But if you read the Psalms, that's not actually the case. God wants to hear our positive and negative emotions. Many of the Psalms are, in essence, prayers, and many of them are lament. Some of them are angry. God wants to hear our hardest emotions. Take a look at Jesus' hard and emotional prayers. Remember his prayers of lament in the garden? The Father wants to hear your honest prayer, so pray honestly. Fifth, pray faithfully. Don't just go to God in prayer when you want something. Remember that you are in covenant relationship with him, and so you want to make sure you are faithful to that relationship. If you are actively in unrepentant sin, it's time to repent so that your prayers can be heard. Listen to some of these scriptures that regard prayer. This is from Proverbs 28.9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. James 5.16 speaks to the effectiveness of prayer when we're walking in righteousness. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. A similar statement is made in Hebrews 5.7 about Jesus and his righteousness. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. If we spend our time in faithless dismissal of God's role as Lord of our lives, why should we expect God to listen when we approach him? This does not mean we need to live lives of perfection, but we need to be walking in general faithfulness. Think about any friendship. Faithfulness in relationship will lead to better communication. And better communication will lead to faithfulness. It is interesting that Peter notes that our prayers to God will be affected by how we treat others. It's as if our relationships on earth will mirror and reflect our relationship with the Father. And this is from 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Just as Jesus connected loving God with loving people in the greatest and in the second commandment, our relationship with the Lord and our ability to speak and communicate in that relationship is mirrored off of our relationship with people on this earth. And whether you're a husband or a wife, or maybe you're unmarried and you just have conflict in marriage, conflict with people hinders our ability to communicate with the Lord, and vice versa. How we act in our earthly relationships is reflected in how we interact with our Heavenly Father, and vice versa. It's important to remember that. Sixth, 
make sure you are engaging in a lifestyle of prayer, both as individuals and then together with other believers. We see Jesus engaged in solitary prayer often, as well as in prayer with the disciples. In Acts 2.42, it says that gathering together from house to house to pray is one of the main parts of being the new community of believers. And even in this time where we are apart from one another, I want to ask you, how often are you praying with other believers? Over the phone, over FaceTime, through email and text, writing out a prayer. Are we praying with one another? I really want to encourage you to do that this week. Seventh, make sure your prayers are multifaceted. And that's a fancy way of saying, make sure they're not just asking the Lord for things. The Lord wants to hear our needs, absolutely, but combine those needs and petitions with praise for his goodness and who he is. Thanksgiving for what he has done for us, including eternal life, forgiveness, resurrection. Include lament for those areas of mourning or areas where you're confused about his will and plan. All of these pieces to prayers are things that he desires to hear from you. Again, think about any earthly relationship. If all I ever do is go to my wife and ask her for things, and I don't have any praise, any encouragement, any love, it's probably not going to go well. We need to interact with the Lord in a way that's multifaceted. In this post-Easter season, it becomes easy for us to begin letting down our spiritual guard and feeling like we have fulfilled the spiritual checklist. That, combined with the unstable environment we find ourselves in, will lead to spiritual battles in which we will find ourselves feeling as though we have taken a step back in our walk and devotion to Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, can I encourage you to spend this week, like the Father in our text today, in acknowledgement of the inadequacy of your own faith, and in acknowledgement of your need for complete reliance on Christ. When we find ourselves engaged in spiritual warfare, or in the midst of recognizing our own inadequacy, let's remember that the solution to spiritual setbacks is ongoing reliance upon the Lord. It's the core and heart of what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship 101 is to completely rely upon the Lord in everything. Let's ask ourselves the questions this week of how much we really rely upon Christ. Is prayer our first option or our last? What does the state of our prayer life speak in terms of our reliance upon him? Let's step further into a life in which he is the source of all that we are and do. As we focus in on relying upon the Lord more this week and using prayer as a tool to do so, I want to initiate this week by praying together as a body from the baseline of how Christ instructed us to pray. So wherever you are right now, at whatever time you're listening to this, I want to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. And I want to recite the Lord's Prayer together so that we can pray as a body the way that Christ called us to pray. And after that, we will be blessed by Jeanette Edel, one of our deacons, as she prays the missional prayer on behalf of our church body. Let's pray together from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to be here with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, wherever we are, in this weird, weird world we live in. Thank you so much that you are constant, even when everything else in this world is not. Help us to cling to you in this time. Help us to seek you with all our hearts and bring all our hurts, joys, and challenges to you. Jesus, by your Spirit, you are just as present now as you were before and have always been and will always be. Thank you so much. Help us come to you and bring all our worries and emotions to you. Help us come and sit with you and just be with you. Thank you for wanting to be with us and to share our emotions and challenges with us, whether they are big or little. Like in Psalm 139, even in these times, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I get up. Help us each to share these things with you. Holy Spirit, even in this uncertainty, this world is, in a sense, the same as it has always been, lost and broken without you. That part has not changed. We are just more aware of it now than we were before. Please open our eyes to see things as you see them. Help us to love our neighbors and people around us. Help us to be a light to them in the darkness, to be a reason for hope in this world full of despair. Help us not be afraid to be bold and courageous in sharing our faith, this reason for the hope that we have. And help us to love our church body well. Father, I pray that we would be more united after this and not less. I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us. Help us to be honest and vulnerable about our needs while also learning how to support each other during this time. Help us to be an encouragement to each other and speak the truth in love. Help us to spur each other on to seek harder after you and help us to rest in your love for us. Father, we love you. Thank you for being constantly faithful, constantly good, and constantly always with us by your Spirit. May we bring glory to you this week. Amen.